welcome to Skype a Scientist Live. Um, next week, we are not going to have any live streams because uh, we've been doing like four weeks since March, and uh, I need to uh, not do any <laughs> for a little bit. Um, and then in July, we've got four sessions uh, planned. They're going to be really cool. Um, you can check them out on our website if you go to skypescientist.com and then go to the live streams tab. We'll be having one a week for July and August since school is generally not in session. On the 8th of July, we're going to be talking with um, a really phenomenal scientist who um, I'm buddies with in Florida. He's going to be telling us about frogs, salamanders, and fungus. His name's Arik, and he knows so much about life in Florida and the Everglades, and it's just it's gonna be great. We're gonna be talking about lasers and milkshakes on the 13th, and we'll explain why those two things have anything to do with each other on that session. Um, it's going to be all about learning and memory, and then uh, all about microbes on the 22nd, and then dung beetles on the 28th. Um, we're also still going to be having our trivia nights for adults every Thursday night at 8 p.m. That's still happening next week. And of course, if you at home want to have a session with a scientist, you can do that. You can sign up at skypeascientist.com, fill out the uh, talk with a scientist tab, there's going to be a Google form, fill it out, and you can request whatever scientists you want. You can also check um, the scientists that are still available for sessions. If you go to the chat with a scientist tab and then click um, the scientist search tool, you can see all of the scientists that are still available to be requested. You can type in spiders or bats or squid or whatever you want. Um, and we probably have a scientist that studies that thing. Um, that is all the housekeeping we have for now. Um, at this point, let's introduce our guest today, cuttlefish scientist, Maria Chavez. All right, good morning, everybody. I'm really excited to talk to you guys um, about the work my lab does on cuttlefish and the way we um, wanna encourage people to get involved in science. So um, I am with BioCurious Labs. We are a community lab based out of Santa Clara, California. That means we're not affiliated with a university um, or any research institute. We are an independent space, like a makerspace for biology. We're one of the first two in the country. Um, we have a, over 100 members, and one of the big ways we encourage people to get involved with science is community-based projects. So these are projects led by PhDs, usually, um, that are long-term research studies that anyone of any age can join in on. We call them barrierless science. So that means there's no barrier for your age, your grade, your education level. There's no money to participate. You don't have to be a member of the lab. There's no fees. You, there's no time commitment. You can join in remotely. And you can be part of these really long-term research studies. And something we've been doing for the last two and a half, almost three years now, is studying cuttlefish. So I'm really excited to talk to you guys uh, about what we do there. And this is just one of about six or seven different research studies uh, we're working on that I help lead. That's so, so cool. So there's one in California and you said there was one other. Is that in New York? We're no, actually, uh, we were the first two. So the first oh, two were okay. New York GenSpace. Yeah. Now um, we help mentor and um, I work with a group out of MIT called the MIT Media Lab uh, Global Community Biosummit. Uh -huh. and mentor community labs all over the world. So we're building a big global network and it's not just New York and California anymore. It's all across Europe, it's all across the US. Um, there's even one or two in libraries that have community labs. 
um, and they want to encourage people to have access to the tools to do biology and to do science. That's so awesome. Um, yeah. So I'm sure we're going to ask more questions about that because that just it seems so cool to me. Um, but is there before we get into cuttlefish, is there a way for us to find where there are these kind of community science spaces near so us? DIYbio.org, and I'll put it in here. Oh, great. Um, they're one of the places that track it. Uh -huh. um, if you really want to get involved, we are just about to open the application for the first ever virtual global community bio summit that'll be virtually held through MIT. This is our fourth one. Uh, last year, we had 400 participants from over 42 countries. Uh, we also ran a fellowship program that was um, in conjunction with MIT and Harvard and how to be a leader in running community-based science programs. And we had 36 fellows from 30 countries. That's so cool. Okay, uh, yeah. I'm definitely gonna check that out. That's awesome. Okay, <laughs> but let's ask you about cuttlefish. So what are the kind, okay, first of all, let's, let's back up. I know what a cuttlefish is. What yeah. exactly is a cuttlefish? So a cuttlefish for uh, those of you on here is a cephalopod. So cephalopods are mollusks. So they're related to snails and clams and other things. And in the mollusks family, the cephalopods are really uh, unique and they're actually considered very unique amongst all animals, which is why we're really excited to study them. I know you study them too, Sarah. So yes. yay, cephalopod fans. Um, and uh, cephalopod itself, um, the word cephalopod actually means head foot in Greek. So that's, you know, the Greeks wanted to refer to the way that their head connects to the arms. Um, they first appeared in the Cambrian period about 500 million years ago. And so they're one of the oldest evolved life forms. And they've kind of branched off from a lot of other things in a very, very unique way. Um, and cuttlefish are one of the types of cephalopods. So they have um, the other three main types of cephalopods are octopus, squid, and nautili, the nautilus. Uh -huh. um, so uh, all of those have a lot of things in common. Um, the nautilus is the one that's um, been unchanged for hundreds of millions of years. They have a hard external shell. They have about 90 arms. Um, they go down to about 2,300 feet all the way back up. Um, they are a little bit different. The other three types of cephalopods, the cuttlefish, squid, and octopus, all lost their shell. So the nautilus is, is, has a nice hard shell, a lot like a snail, um, but the other three lost their shells. The squid and, and cuttlefish actually kind of turned them internal. In the cuttlefish, it's a cuttle bone, and in the squid, it's a pen, um, and the octopus doesn't um, have that internal shell feature. Awesome. Um, yeah. So in your lab, why did you decide of all these cephalopods to choose to work on the cuttlefish? Well, we were actually, so we, we generally were more interested in the DNA to start with. We actually got really interested because, um, as some of you may know, in 2017, there was a really interesting paper that came out on ADI editing in um, uh, cuttlefish. We were in, really interested in their neurons and in how they were doing these genetic edits. And when we started looking at the cephalopod family, most of us didn't know a lot about cephalopods, so uh, we were looking and looking, and the original paper came out in octopus, and our biggest question was, if it is true that these animals can do, show different ways that they handle their DNA and how they adapt to their environments, in an octopus, do the other animals um, like squid and cuttlefish also see this behavior? And when we started getting into it, the one thing we ran up against is there's just not enough people studying these animals. And so at the time, 
there was only one fully sequenced, and this is where we're really interested in gene sequencing in our lab. We do have an Illumina gene sequencer on site. Um, so we have a lot of people with expertise in these areas who work, you know, kind of at these big companies in the Bay Area that do gene sequencing. Um, and the cuttlefish was the least known. And so that's why we were interested. The second reason is that you can actually, and they're rare, they're not common, but you can actually, as a home aquarist or as a small lab, raise and find um, uh, sepia bandensis, which is the dwarf cuttlefish. So it's not like the commitment for a larger animal um, and it's not quite as complicated. So they were gonna be much easier for us to be able to use as a model organism. For sure, yeah. So um, for those that have been tuning into other cephalopod week events here, you may have heard that uh, the squid are really, really hard to keep in captivity because yeah. they eat like a, like a marathon runner, just constantly eating and constantly excreting waste. And cuttlefish are not quite as athletic as the squid are. They're not constantly going back and forth. They just kind of hover and chill. That cuttle bone um, helps them stay buoyant, like they don't accidentally float, they don't accidentally sink, they just kind of sit in yep. the water. Um, and so that makes them not need as much food, basically. Um, yeah. yeah. I always think of them being very um, uh, metabolically efficient, also known as lazy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. They just really? And they don't even like hunting as much as they just like sitting there and waiting for the food to come past them. I know, I know. I love cuttlefish so much. I worked with cuttlefish um, in, in college with Roger Hanlon, and I just love them so much. They're so cute. And then the, the little squid that I work on, the um, bobtail squid, they're also like even more couch potato than the, the cuttlefish. Like cuttlefish are at least like hover swimming around. And bobtail squid just plop on the sand and don't do anything until they actively see food and they yes. get up, attack the food and then just plop right back down and just like sit on the sand munching. Yes. And that's actually the funniest part about raising cuttlefish, which we've been doing for about two years now, um, is yeah, they're, they're really pretty and they're kind of boring until you feed them so that twice a day when you're feeding them, they're really exciting for a couple of minutes and then they go back to not doing much. Yeah, watching a cuttlefish eat is so cool because especially with bandensis, the, the species yeah. she's working on, because, like, when they get their food, when they, like, get it in their little hands, they, like, their colors go bananas, and it's just, it's, it's really, really cool. Um, they do, and I think that that's actually one of the things that, um, you know, when we started this project, we were just interested um, primarily in this DNA sort of function, and um, I'll talk a little bit more about that, but, um, just learning more and raising them we've just we've fallen in love with everything about cuttlefish and now this went from a gene sequencing project um and kind of you know our our a very very big goal which is a big goal for our lab our size was to um reconstruct and annotate the genome of sepia bandensis we've not done that because we've run into a lot of problems with that um and we were working with um sponsorship from illumina uh the gene sequencing company and working with ucsf to use their high seek sequencers mm -hmm. um for illumina uh and our first couple of runs with that did not go well so we really had to step back and think about that but the longer we work with this the funniest thing is the larger the project has grown yeah for sure it's like ballooned because they're so fascinating they're 
the best. Um, also assembling cuttlefish genomes. So, so for those of you who don't know much about gene sequencing, which I imagine is most of you because I didn't know until I was like 25. So um, basically you've got these long, 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 long strands of DNA. But what you can't really like take something that long and sequence the whole thing from start to finish because it just like it's just too much. And so what we do now is we basically take that long strand of DNA and then we chop it up into little bits. And then we sequence those little bits, kind of like puzzle pieces. And then at the end, you've got all these little sequences that you have to figure out how they all go back together again. And there's some overlap over the sequences that allow you to basically puzzle piece it all back together. And we don't have to do that by hand. We have computers that help us like figure all that out. But when you have an animal or a plant that has basically lots of copies of the same stuff in their DNA, um, imagine a puzzle that has the same scene 10 times. It's just really hard. Like, how do you know where it goes? It's just hard for the computer or any, or a human for that matter, to figure out what goes where. And so that is, so I, I, I'm on the, um, you primnus genome. I, we, I went through all the problems that you're probably having now with cuttlefish. It's really hard. Um, and so trees have the same problem because in their genome, there's like 16 copies of everything. So it's wild. Um, I don't actually know why trees have that, but cuttlefish and squid and octopus, um, they're not that bad. They don't have 16 copies, but no. they- No, they're not that bad, but it wasn't that easy. There were some fundamental things that we just started learning. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, to give people some ideas of the sizes, you know, um, on my calls, I always have a lot of people who know a lot about computers. Yeah. So think about it. The human genome is about 3 billion base pairs. So each base pair is an A, T, C, or G. Um, we, you know, we're, sepia bendensis, we're guessing, is about 3 to 6 billion base pairs. So it's similar size to a human. Um, those trees that Sarah was talking about can be up to a couple of hundred billion base pairs, which is why we've never successfully sequenced them. The largest gene sequence we've ever assembled was the axolotl, which is uh, the Mexican um, uh, types of salamander that uh, can regenerate its whole limbs. And we were really interested in, is there something in its genome that allows it to do that? And a big European group uh, worked on putting that genome together. And it took an entire summer of supercomputer time, and the entire summer, because that genome was about 48 billion base pairs. I had no idea. Yeah, it's huge. It is the biggest reconstructed genome they've managed. And it took the, the, the big Max Planck Institute and others donated a summer of supercomputing time to put that together. Our best guess is it's going to take about four days on the second largest core on Amazon's um, cloud to put together the sepia bandensis uh, genome, which is about three to $4,000 worth of computing time. And that's one run through to try to reassemble that. If we screw it up, we're gonna have to pay so to do it again. Yeah, oh boy. And, and a home computer does not have the amount of storage necessary to do this. You do need a really big computer because you have to hold the entire genome in memory to reassemble it. It's insane, because what you're doing is you're cutting this $3 billion piece sequence into 150 base pieces for Illumina sequencing. Uh, and that's just one of two kinds of gene sequencing. The other one is long read, which is preferred for what we're trying to do, um, which cuts it into about two to 5,000 uh, 
base long sequences. And there's advantages to either technology, but that's a whole nother talk. Well, there are um, worms, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we were really interested. And then we got into it, and our problem was actually the very first step, which is how do you sequence DNA? You get a sample of an animal, um, however you're gonna do that, and you pull the DNA out. Um, the fresher the sample is, the better. Uh, and we started with a cuttlefish egg, and we worked with Illumina, and it turns out that modern PCR kits don't work well for cuttlefish is what we found out through a lot of trial and error. Oh, wow. So wow. Um, all of those are optimized for mammals. They're really optimized for humans. Um, the way that the kits and the columns work just don't work. We've been working on it for quite some time, troubleshooting, and it looks like cuttlefish ink. Cuttlefish ink is messing up all the PCRs and the DNA extractants. I relate. I relate so much. We, so my lab mate, so okay, a little bit of backstory. My, the lab that I worked for in grad school, um, my lab mate, so my coworker basically, she was trying to get DNA out and RNA, which, uh, we won't get into that, uh, out of this bacteria that has pigments. They're like hot pink, bright yellow. They're really beautifully colored. They look like a strawberry patch basically on the plate. Um, and much like Maria is saying with the ink, the pigments in this bacteria make it really hard to make any of our protocols work. Like it just mucks it up. We don't really know why. Um, but yeah, cuttlefish ink does the same thing. It's just. It's yeah, it's the glycoproteins in it. Yeah, right. So yeah, anyway, um, yeah, let's get a little bit more into the biology of, of cuttlefish as opposed yeah. to their, their DNA. Um, the first question is, how do cuttlefish move? Um, <laughs> and so that's just, let's start there. How do cuttlefish move? So cuttlefish move through two different things. Like other cephalopods, they have a siphon. So they actually pull water in through their siphon and they jet propulsion through that. But additionally, they have these um, like fins around the outside and they're really, really, really beautiful. The way that they're able to move those to help them adjust. Um, and so that's how they get fast movements and that's how they can get kind of gliding movements. But then as far as going up and down the water column, like to go through different depths, they actually use their cuddle bone. So that's what's really exciting is that cuddle bone is like a swim bladder that allows them to be more or less dense and get more or higher or lower in the water column. What's really interesting for them, again, metabolically efficient, um, the cuttlefish uses significantly orders of magnitude less energy to move up and down the water column than any other animal in the ocean because of the cuddle bone. It just allows them to very, very simply adjust um, their density uh, and move up and down like a little swim bladder. That's so cool. Cuddle bones are really cool. cool and awesome. Um, where should someone look when scuba diving to find cuttlefish? Not the Americas. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. The weirdest thing is there are, you know, like in California and stuff, we've got Humboldt squid, there's the giant octopus, what have you. Uh, cuttlefish, for whatever reason, do not exist uh, in the oceans around the Americas. There's something that happened, you know, hundreds of millions of years ago. They are around every other continent. So they're off the coast of every continent with warmish waters. So they're not in the Arctic type, really cold waters. But other than that, they're everywhere. They like warmer waters. Um, they are starting to see some environmental pressures, so we are seeing some problems with populations. But if you really want to see them, the most famous in the world are probably um, in Australia. The giant cuttlefish in Australia is a huge attraction. I've got friends who study them down there. And at some point, post-pandemic, 
I hope to make it down there to see them. But it used to be that people would report um, hundreds of thousands of these giant uh, Australian cuttlefish, and now they're seeing um, in the thousands. I did um, hear this year, it, it, was a, it was better than last year. It was. There was a report that came out on the 24th, so I guess like two days ago, Australia did a big survey that they're looking, it's better. Um, cuttlefish, like a lot, I think all the cephalopods and a lot of animals respond to their breeding cycles are related to the temperature of water. So with the changing water temperatures, it's changing their breeding cycles. So it may either be delaying them, canceling them. We don't really understand what's going on with all the environmental pressures. Um, but it was a much better year, and the Australian government has some funding, not enough in my opinion, but some funding that is studying what's happening because they are such a draw for um, tourism. But I think that they're actually just an important species. Yeah, for sure. Um, that's also, like, literally number one on my bucket list, seeing those animals. <laughs> They've been my favorite animal for, for, like, over a decade, and I just am dying to see them. Um, I was planning on going in 2021. I was like, this is it. This is going to be my year. And I'm like, I don't even know if we're going to be able to fly at that time of year in 2020. Anyway, yeah, maybe yeah. it'll be 2022. I don't know. We'll see. But um, the next question is from Leah. Are cuttlefish aggressive to other cuttlefish or to people? <laughs> so like all cephalopods, they have personalities. And this is very, very true. Uh, you know, we could talk a lot about the cephalopod brain and how smart they are. I can tell you our cuttlefish at our lab, uh, and we usually only keep one or two at a time because we have a small lab with just a couple of tanks, um, very much know who people are so they can tell you apart. They know who the people are who bring them food and they will come out when they see you or hear you approaching the tank to see if you're going to feed them. Mm -hmm. one, of our, our head, one of our head researchers, she tried to feed them some frozen food that was thought out that they did not like and they've never forgiven her. I love they that. It water at her. They start flashing angry colors at her when she comes by, and it was months. Um, with each other, they're relatively benign. They kind of ignore each other until mating season. They're not um, schooling animals. They tend to have territories to hunt, um, they, but they're not um, overly aggressive with each other until mating season. And their mating season behavior is hilarious, more so than I think almost any animal. Uh, the cuttlefish have, um, uh, if we talk, just to segue a little, talk about their skin, their chromatophores, let them change colors. Uh -huh. They're really, really, really exciting. The chromatophores, they have more chromatophores per square inch than your TV. The best TV that we have in the world does not have as high of a resolution as cuttlefish skin, which I think it's just fascinating how quick they can change colors, how quick they can adapt, and that whole system is why they have such complex brains. Um, now, I bring this up because this is the aggressive part. So cuttlefish try to fool each other during mating season. So, you know, they're trying to scope out who's the best lady out there, what have you. And they're so good at being able to adapt their skin. They don't just adapt to their environment. They use their skin in a lot of different ways. And towards each other, a cuttlefish will slide up to a female, a male cuttlefish will slide up to a female cuttlefish. And the side on that's nearest her will be showing very attractive to female cuttlefish patterns. The side away from her, so let's say the right side's facing him, if the left side is facing the other rest of the ocean, he mimics the colors of a female cuttlefish to make it look like they are two female cuttlefish sitting next to each other and not another male cuttlefish that's trying to, you know, get in there. <laughs> um, 
they, they're really sneaky. And the fact that they can um, differentiate half of their body like that and have these mimicry patterns of not just the environment, but say half of me is going to look like an, uh, an attractive male and the other half is going to look like a woman so you could ignore me it's, is yeah. they're bizarre to the extreme. <laughs> Totally. There's also the, these, these squid in the Caribbean, the Caribbean reef squid, which is one, another one of my favorites, does a similar thing. Like it all, literally, it looks like a court jester. It splits themselves right down the middle, does white on one side, brown on the other, because exactly for, this, for a similar reason, one is friendly to the female, and the other one is aggressive to anybody else, the male. So a little bit different than the cuttlefish situation, but it's still bananas. Yeah. Works. And, and, and they don't tend, they, they, they get a little aggressive. The males will kind of, they will occasionally kill each other during mating season if you've got too many in a tank. I know California Academy of Science has that problem occasionally, and I know that because we get their dead uh, specimens, so we have a great agreement with them to take them for sequencing and um, dissection. Um, and they're often missing a couple of limbs <laughs> that got torn off. Uh, but more frequently uh, when posturing at each other they just strobe different colors and whoever's got the most aggressive color strobe pattern wins yep um but how can you tell if a cuttlefish is a male or a female you can't <laughs> that's actually the biggest pain is you really can't um there's been a lot of research on it i think dr richard ross's lab um at cal academy has done some of the best work on that and they have no outward characteristics. So unless they're laying eggs or you see how they react to each other, there doesn't seem to be a lot of differentiation in size, in color pattern, et cetera. Right, sounds good. Um, Audrey wants to know how big are cuttlefish and how old can they get? So cuttlefish can raise in, range in size a lot. So they can go from uh, the really small pygmy uh, type sizes can be like 2.5 centimeters or really, really tiny little ones. The really big ones can be up to 90 centimeters or longer, you know, up to like 1.5 meters. Um, so they vary in size a lot. And I think there's um, around 100 species, subspecies of cuttlefish um, for lifespan. They're like all cephalopods. They don't actually live very long. That's one of the strangest things about cephalopods is they are so complex and they're one of the most intelligent animals with one of the shortest lifespans. Um, so they generally live six months to two years. Sounds good. Um, the next question is, can you explain um, the biochemistry or physics behind the ability of cuttlefish to change colors so quickly? Yeah, sort of. So um, <laughs> this is a complicated question. So uh, the changing colors so quickly is partially um, how well their systems have adapted. And some of this is a combination of um, the way that their color, they change colors is actually contracting muscles that can contract the ink sacs and the chromatophores. So the cells that change colors on their skin are, are called chromatophores. They have a little tiny ink sac on them, and depending on how they contract that, it produces not just a color, but different shades of colors. Um, uh, other things, like I know bobtail squid have uh, iridophores, and they can do various things. Um, the weirdest thing is they can polarize light with their skin as well um, by, change, by the way they contract these muscles. Um, some of this is related to um, that A to I editing, which we can talk about a little bit more, and the complexity of their nervous system. So, um, uh, you know, in the octopus, we see that their nervous system is a brain that um, 
it's kind of like a three brain system, but then they also have a brain in each tentacle of their arm. The cuttlefish has also got a very, very complex nervous system. Um, and it's to help them adapt to changes. Now, the weirdest thing about the cuttlefish and the thing people are still speculating and don't have a definitive answer, but a lot of theories around is, how does something that can only see in black and white change their color based on a lot of different colors? So there's something for you guys to think about, and there's a lot of things about that. Um, so one of that, one of those things is that the shape of the cuttlefish eye. So a cuttlefish has a W-shaped eye um, pupil. So your pupil's round, it gets round or uh, opens and closes. Theirs is shaped in a W, and they can close and open different sides of it. And that allows them uh, with a single cone, um, we have three cones that see red, blue, and green, to be able to kind of see different polarizations of light and different wavelengths of light that their brain then interprets as different colors. And they're able to then almost instantaneously adapt those colors that they're seeing to their skin. So again, you've got their eyes polarizing light, changing the shape of their pupils, going to their brains, their brains then using some of these A to I edits to very, very quickly adapt to their environment, get this into the muscles, which contract certain amounts to then display colors. And if you've seen it, this is not a short thing that happened or a long thing. This happens almost instantaneously. They strobe colors like a strobe light. They can change colors pretty dramatically depending on what species it is. It's very cool. Google flamboyant cuttlefish um, or passing cloud um, because that'll that'll show you that strobe that Maria's talking about. It is so cool. Um, yeah, and the, the cool thing about chromatophores is that each chromatophore, which is that little uh, like pigment sac that's surrounded by those muscles that can like basically take it from being a tiny little blob to a big pancake, and that's how they like flash kind of. Um, that is all connected directly to the brain. So each chromatophore has a direct connection to the brain and that's why it's so fast. It's as fast as they can think. And those iridophores that Maria is talking about, those sparkly ones, um, those are hormonally controlled. So those are much slower. Those, um, that, that's how, uh, the, what's the lizard, chameleon, <laughs> sorry, brain fart, um, how chameleons change color, they do it hormonally. So it's fast, but it's not as fast as it's you think. instantaneous for a cuttlefish. And here's another thing, they don't just change their color, they've got a whole nother system to change the texture. So they can get really, really spiky, and they can not just, they don't just look like a rock, they, they exude little spikes to make them look like a like really get the texture of a rock or various other things and they can control how spiky their um, skin is with um, I can't remember what the layer is under the chromatophores that does that and again that's a muscle contraction that allows them control which ones spike up and it's it's it is so complicated and so fascinating and again they're really really tiny I mean the dwarf cuttlefish only get to be about two to three inches long they're little itty bitty guys yeah, so back to the question about uh, finding cuttlefish. Sometimes it's really hard because they're so good at camouflage. So you might be swimming right next to cuttlefish and you just can't see them. Yeah, it's it actually makes them really hard to raise in a tank because they like to hide. Mm -hmm. So they like to hide under things. They like to bury themselves in sand. They like to hide in caves and they like to be lazy. So unless you're feeding them when they come out, you're just not, you have to, it's like a big Where's Waldo game to find them in a tank. Right. 
Um, so Grant, age 10, would like to know, why are cuttlefish such catch potatoes? Like, why aren't they swimming around all actively like a squid does? Because they don't have to. They've evolved to be lazy. Also, um, a, a lot of larger ocean predators have figured out that cephalopods, much like humans have figured out, are some of the tastiest things in the ocean. So they are very, they, they are predators, but they are also prey. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that they don't move around a lot is then they aren't noticed. So they like to sit and hide from other predators because it's efficient for them. They don't have to eat as often. They don't have to hunt as often if you just wait for your prey to come by. Um, in the open ocean, they do swim around some. The larger cuttlefish tend to swim around more um, than the smaller ones, which like to hide a lot. But they've adapted. They're the couch potatoes of the cephalopod world. Absolutely. Um, Aubrey, Zadie, and Ian would like to know, how do cuttlefish protect themselves? Um, so they've got a couple of ways they can protect themselves. Ink, we haven't talked about their ink quite a lot, but ink is actually a big way they protect themselves. So like um, uh, squid and octopus, but not the nautilus. Nautilus don't make ink, but squid, octopus, and cuttlefish all make ink, and it allows them to do a couple of things. Um, they use ink to startle uh, animals that are hunting them so they can get away. They can actually disperse the ink in a couple of different ways in a cloud, so they can kind of hide and get away. They can actually sometimes disperse it in a small burst that makes it look like another cuttlefish and distract them and attack the ink. Um, and the ink will actually um, mess up the predator. So the ink has some compounds in it that gets into their eyes and their gills and distresses the predators. Um, so you don't want to get inked. And it's actually, their tendency to ink when they're stressed is why it's really hard to buy any of the cephalopods, because if you try to ship them in a baggie, when they get stressed, they'll ink, and they can actually kill themselves with their own ink. So if you um, buy cephalopods, you can't ship them very well, and that's one of the reasons you don't see them a lot in aquariums, is a shipping problem, because they'll ink themselves when they're stressed. It's tough. It's it a is. challenge. Um, the next question is from Grant and Grayson. What is your favorite cuttlefish? Right now it's gotta be sepia bandensis. Those are my babies. Those are the ones I raised. They're dwarf cuttlefish. You can keep them in an aquarium about um, 40 gallons. Uh, they get to be about two inches. They live um, six months to a year or so. We've kept them as long as 18 months because they're not breeding. Um, uh, and they're adorable. They're really, really cute. They're friendly enough to keep you know, as pets. Um, they don't need, you know, officinalis, which is the one most people like to study in research, needs about a 200 gallon tank. They're really big. They're like 18 plus inches, 18 to 24 inches, and they eat so much. Yeah, they're really hard. Um, so would you recommend having a cuttlefish as a pet? No, no, um, not unless you're an advanced aquarist. My two things are, they're actually really easy to keep an, an aquarium if you're used to keeping a reef aquarium. Um, however, the one caveat with cuttlefish, there's two. One, can you get them shipped to you? Because you really need to raise them from eggs, which is a challenge. Two, um, feeding them. That is the only problem I've ever had with cuttlefish is they are really picky eaters. Um, and their food can be very, very expensive. Um, and this is why we do this as a group community research project where like 40 people are chip chipping in a couple of dollars a month for their food because we spend upwards of one to $200 a month on food for two cuttlefish. Yep. 
Yeah. Attorneys Unless you can have a lot of extra money for a hobby uh, and you really, really love your aquarium because you need a good reef aquarium, which will be one to $2,000. You need to be, be able to commit 50 to $100 a month on food. Um, if you can do those things, they're actually easier than other things I've kept in a reef aquarium. They're pretty hardy. They seem pretty good with a lot of conditions. They're not nearly as delicate as a lot of people have told me, or at least mine weren't. You know, they're, pre they're pretty good at adapting to things. But the food, the food thing I cannot get over. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wouldn't, I would not have, I love cephalopods. I would not have one as a pet. Um, oh. You can never leave the house. You can never go on vacation. They'll die. Uh, you'd have to find somebody who knows how to take care of a reef aquarium while you go on vacation. And they may not eat for them. That's the problem. This is part of the picky food. It's not just that. If someone they don't know gives them food, they may not eat it, even if it's the exact same food they've always gotten, just because they don't trust them and they don't know you. So they literally are worse than a dog. I did. I've never uh, heard of the individual. That's amazing. That's wild. Uh, that's cool. Okay. No, it's insane. Like you said, you can't go on vacation. They, fortunately, three of us got them used to it. So at least one of the three of us could be there, but no, no one else. Wow. Um, all right. Next question. Leah would like to know how many eggs on average might a cuttlefish release at a time? So um, uh, cuttlefish lay between 40 to over 100 eggs. So it depends on the species. Um, usually they just do one clutch and then like most cephalopods, they die. Yep. So that's the short lifespan is they mate, they lay their eggs, and then they die. Yep, that's how it goes. Um, other cephalopods don't do this. They can do multiple, but yeah, cuttlefish are one and done. Emma would like to know, how do you catch a cuttlefish? So hard. They're really, they, when they want to be, they're really fast and squirmy and they have really good vision um, and a, much smarter than you think. Uh, usually nets though. So when they're, um, all the squid, the calamari and stuff you see, they have, um, they usually do night fishing. So they, uh, they, they it's a multi-tier uh, system. Like um, they'll use lights to attract small fish to the surface and octopus squid cuttlefish whatever will come up to feed on those small animals and then they're able to scoop up a bunch at a time yep sounds good do you know Aubrey Zadie and Ian would like to know why they're called cuttlefish I actually don't know why they're called cuttlefish I looked into this like 10 years ago and I don't know if this is this is true this is like from my googling 10 years ago so like take this with a grain of salt but I was looking at the entomology of cuttlefish and it like one hypothesis is that it came from like, I think old Norse, um, coddy fish was something that they found back in the day. Um, and I think coddy means like sack. So it, it originated from Norse, maybe. Um, basically sack fish. Cause they look kind of like a block, like, like a little pouch. Um, so it's, uh, that's, that's what we think it came from, but we're not sure. Um, We've got one, time for one more question, and then we'll uh, get into our final two questions that we ask everybody. Leah would like to know, uh, what's the preferred food of cuttlefish in the wild, and how does that differ from the food that they might eat in the lab? So in the wild, it depends on their hunting grounds. In general, they like crustaceans. So they are really, really big on, they'll, they're pretty um, open to any small animals, but they love crabs. They adore shrimp. 
Um, in the lab, it depends what you can get because we're um, using eating, we've got a really small species of cuttlefish, the dwarf cuttlefish. Um, when they're babies, we feed them something called mycid shrimp. Uh, mycid shrimp are really, they're, they're a size up from brine shrimp and they are a pain. I hate those things so much because I can't get them to breed and I have to buy them fresh all the time. Um, they eat each other. They eat their cannibalistic <laughs> shrimp. I hate them so I will raise cuttlefish. I can't manage to raise mycids. Um, when they get a little bit bigger, you can move to shore shrimp um, and small crabs. Um, they will eat any fish you put in the tank, so you can't keep them with any fish in your tank. Your cuttlefish will be the only thing in there. Um, but generally, we try to stip stick with shrimps and crabs. And occasionally, uh, fish. The fish are usually too expensive because they can't eat freshwater fish. Um, cool. Okay. One uh, hot tip I have for you on the mice. We got them to breed, but we had to overfeed them absurdly. So we had Artemia, Artemia, our brine shrimp. Yep. And we put that, do you use that like Celcon stuff? It's like this yep. very smelly, lipidy, like fatty nutrient sludge, basically. And we dropped that in the Artemia. And then we put the mice literally in like two large jacuzzi sized, like a, a, a tank that was absurdly big. Because if they, are too close to each other. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's it. No, the recommended tank size is 50 gallons to start breeding mycid shrimp, which is bigger than I've got for the cuttlefish. It's just, so. You need, you need a, a swimming pool to make it work, honestly. It's absurd. Um, cool, okay. So we always ask everybody the same two questions at the end of these sessions. And the first is, what is something that you wish everybody in the world knew about your area of expertise? And the second question is, what's something that you wish everybody in the world knew about literally anything? It can be as silly and insignificant or big picture important as you'd like. Um, let me see, about cuttlefish. Um, I wish people knew how intelligent they were because I think that people see all the cephalopods and they're either grossed out by them or they see them as food and they don't see them as the really, really remarkable animals that they are and how adaptive they are and how truly unique and probably important to our food chain they are. And we've overfished them because um, they're tasty. And so I really wish people saw um, just how smart they were. That sounds great. And what would you like us to know about anything? About anything? Um, let me think. One thing we haven't talked about, just cephalopod wise, is their immune system. That's another thing we've started looking into. Cephalopod immune systems, much like their eyesight, how do they see um, polarized light and how do they see colors with only one cone, which only sees in black and white? Their immune system does not act like ours. So human and mammalian immune systems, you have um, an adaptive immune system. That's why, speaking of COVID, we get viruses. If you encounter a virus, once you've fought it off, you can fight it off again because your body remembers it. They don't have an adaptive immune system, but somehow they have a system that can remember things. So they can fight things off if they've seen it before and they actually adapt faster than our immune system. So how is it working? What did they evolutionarily 500 or you know 400 million years ago adapt to do and how does it work? So that's one of the biggest questions I have um, that I wanna look into and I think is really interesting. Awesome. Sounds good. That, I spent a fair amount of time in my PhD working on that question. Um, so that's really cool. All right. Um, do you have anything that you would like to plug? Um, anywhere that we can find you on social media? Yeah, you can find me on um, Twitter on at Maria. You can find my lab, biocurious.org, and I'll type that in. 
Um, we've got links to our Cuttlefish project and other community projects. If you're interested in talking about bioprinting, cuttlefish, uh, recombinant cheese proteins, bioreactors, open sourced insulin production for DIY pharmaceuticals, um, uh, science communication or anything else, I'm up for a lot of those topics. Amazing, so versatile, so many cool things you have going on. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. This was yeah. really, really, really cool. I love this program and I'd like to plug, if you guys aren't already supporting Skype a Scientist on Patreon, you guys should, because for a dollar a month, you guys are getting amazing access to content. I appreciate that, thank you so much. Um, I'm also gonna put tonight, at 8 p.m., we're gonna do a pretty, uh, something different. Um, it's gonna be like a tabletop game about squid. So you'll learn about squid. We have a shark scientist joining us. We've got the author of um, Squid Empire, which is a book all about cephalopod evolution, D Donna Staff. She's so great. Um, Casey Zakroff, who is a scientist who studies the um, effect of climate change on squid. Um, a AI scientist who just likes tabletop games, Jordan Herod, uh, Maris Wicks, an artist, and a bunch of other folks are going to be joining us. Um, and there's going to be some like uh, interactive stuff for the audience as well. That's totally free to come to. Um, if you'd like to RSVP, the link is in the chat. Um, or just show up. We'll be tweeting about it as per usual. Um, thank you, everybody, for joining us. Thank you, Maria, for your awesome uh, information. And thank you, Erin, for signing for us. Uh, we will see you all, not next week but the week after. All right. Thank bye. you, Sarah, for putting this together. Thanks, everybody. Have a good weekend. You too. Bye.